school. If you've not been here the last couple of weeks, um, the, uh, and, and for those of you who are a little OCD in the room or, or online, I will try to make sure that the tassels line up. I've had some concerns communicated about that. So the, um, uh, uh, and if I need to get your attention, I'll just, you know, just shift a little bit. Sorry. The, um, uh, okay, so as we're jumping into this, again, just, I'm just so amazed um, and you'd think I'd be used to this by now, but I won't, and I hope never, maybe I never am, of the power of, of God's Word to teach itself to us, um, and, and just the amount, uh, honestly, in some ways, how just in our face almost the messages of Scripture are. Um, I may not have communicated <coughs> my vision for, now that's a different kind of stole right there. That's a good look right there, so. Um, <laughs> very nice. So, Paul's, Paul's wearing a scarf, his, one of his little girl's scarf, so they're looking good. All right, so the, um, uh, and all of this. So this is, this is part of the conversation I had with the guys on the podcast that I think clarifies what I'm wanting to accomplish um, over these four, kind of five sessions, maybe six, um, including that kind of weird Sunday between everything, the new year and the end of the year and all that kind of stuff. But and is that I imagined Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John sitting down like they were on a podcast with four mics and, and being asked, okay, guys, what, what, would you, what do you think is the most important aspect of the coming of Jesus Christ, like of the advent, of, of the coming of Jesus, uh, the man, God coming to experience life as a man? Like, how would, you, how would you unpack that? And Matthew's saying, oh, listen, you got to start, you got you to you talk about the wise men. And John going, whoa, whoa, you can't start with the wise men. I mean, that's like two years into the story. You, and you, or, or, or maybe, maybe it's Luke's like, that's two years into the story. You got to start with the shepherds, man. That's, that's moment number one and the angels and you can't miss out. On, and John, John saying, shepherds, you can't start with, you have to start before the creation of time. Like you can't, you can't start with shepherds or wise men. What are y'all thinking? And, and, and Mark saying like, ah, let's start with a ministry. Let's, that's what's important. Baby Jesus, okay, that's cute and everything, but we got to start with baptized Jesus. That's where it really starts kicking in. And I love the idea of these four men sitting down over over coffee or or at a podcast or something, explaining and even debating. Like you can't, you're leaving something out. Or, and I mentioned in the first service, maybe it happened. I mean, these guys these guys were mostly probably contemporaries. We don't know for sure that they ever all sat down together, but maybe maybe we could even imagine. Matthew saying, okay, Luke, I saw your rough draft, um, and, and I noticed you're spending a lot of energy on the shepherds, but you didn't really, you didn't really comment on the wise men. So I'm gonna, I'll take the wise men. I'll focus my attention. You've got the shepherds covered. I'll talk about the wise men. And, and maybe that exact kind of thing happened. That's, we've talked about when we team teach up here, or even, uh, even right before the podcast with the guys, that we'll say, okay, you're going to talk about that. Okay, I'll let you cover that. I'll, I'll wait and cover this thing over here. And Maybe. It certainly is the way it played out. That the way these men, and we're going to talk next week about some of the things that, that they all mentioned, all four of them mentioned, which is also significant, but then the different emphasis that they have. But what's, what's wild is <coughs> how the message of the Advent is so similar across um, all four of them. The message is what Paul talked about last week, wonder, treasuring, glorifying, and praising. It's why we can year after year say, hey, you know, whatever we're going to teach through the Advent, here's some things we're going to focus on. Hope, peace, joy, love. Because they're, they're going to turn up. You talk about the Advent, those are going to turn up. 
They're there. They are hardwired in to the account of the birth and the coming of Jesus Christ. And the joy that we talk about, that we sing about, that we discuss is so powerful. Those of you who know, I spent a lot of years, joy was one of those ones I just never could wrap my brain around that I couldn't define it in a way that I liked until a few years ago teaching through the book of John. And the idea of defining joy as happiness that we borrow from the future began to make sense to me. Then the same way worry is anxiety that we borrow from the future. We can be in a very anxious situation and yet have happiness that we borrow from the future. We can have be in a very peaceful, positive, um, happy situation and borrow anxiety from the future and turn it into a horrible experience as well. For us to learn to look to the future for what God has promised us and who God is and how He relates to us and to bring that into the present is a powerful thing. That God gives us a hope that allows us to have joy that in turn, as we rest in that, provides peace. And by the way, it proceeds from His love for us. So as we unpack these, it begins to make more and more sense. Anticipation of a bad thing can be worry, and anticipation of a good thing can be joy. Here we have Matthew uh, really spending a lot of time talking about the, this, who this Jesus character is is. Who is this guy, this Messiah? And so I want to take one second and explain who Matthew was. Matthew is one of the 12 apostles who traveled around with Jesus. We're going to uh, talk a little bit more about his role as a tax collector in a minute. But here we have, you'll, sometimes you'll hear, just for the sake of discussion, sometimes you'll hear, especially in the kind of neo-atheist world, they'll throw something out there because they, they either are ignorant of it or they assume that you're ignorant of it, that they'll say like, well, we don't know who really wrote the book of Matthew because Matthew didn't sign it. Like Paul signs his letters, but Matthew didn't sign the gospel of Matthew. And by the way, neither did Mark, Luke, or John sign their gospels, um, which is not strange from that era. But, but Matthew, didn't, Matthew didn't sign it. But understand that from essentially day one, everyone understood this was by Matthew. It was always ascribed to Matthew um, Papias, who was alive from A.D. 60 to A.D. 130, one of the church fathers, he said it was by Matthew. Well, A.D. 60, that's a contemporary of Matthew. Now, he may have been a child when Matthew was an adult, but, but they, they are, their, their lives overlapped. So if you have someone that early saying, no, this was, this was by the apostle Matthew, it's unreasonable to question that it's by Matthew. That's just ridiculous at that point. By the way, so did Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Eusebius, and Origen. They all affirmed this is by Matthew, and all of them lived before the year 200 A.D. This is, this is not a question, really, that anyone's asking. This is by Matthew, the Apostle Matthew. There's other reasons to think it as well. By the way, you may, some people will say, um, hey, well, why, why would Matthew have written in Greek? And if that's troubling to you, probably not many of you, but why would Matthew have written in Greek? Well, he may not have. In fact, the earliest church fathers referenced the fact that the original Matthew was written in Hebrew. So for all the archaeologists in the room, I have a new challenge for you. There's a new Holy Grail. We need that, that Hebrew copy of Matthew. I need someone to go find that for me, please. That would be so cool. The thought that that exists out there somewhere, the, the, the book of Matthew in Hebrew. So all you Indiana Jones types need to get your fedoras on and go find that thing. That would be so cool. All right, so... Finally, <clears throat> why ascribe <clears throat> the book of Matthew to a tax collector if it wasn't written by a tax collector? There's absolutely no reason to do it. It's, it's a, you would never want it to be written by Matthew 
unless it was written by Matthew. Tax collectors were not highly looked upon people. They were traitors, and no one liked them. And so you would never just go like, ah, let's pick a disciple. I don't know, Matthew. You would never, ever do that. And so the fact that it's ascribed to Matthew at all early on is a good indication it was written by Matthew, and that Matthew, who was one of the eyewitnesses, at least from the time of Jesus' ministry, who knows how long back he lived in the northern Galilee region. He may have known a lot of these people who are involved all through it. Finally, it is kind of fun um, that Matthew, Matthew comments multiple times on financial issues that none of the other apostles do, which is exactly what you would expect. If you had an accountant who tells a story, they're going to reference the financial. You know, that's how we know how many pieces of silver Judas was paid is that Matthew tells us. Well, of course, because Matthew's figuring the taxes on those 30 pieces of silver, right? He's like, and that's going to cost him an additional, like that's what he's, you know, it's bracket and you got to figure out which, you know, what he's going to deduct. So, <clears throat> so you have Matthew starts here with some details that of course he does. He wants to establish who Jesus is. Who is this Jesus character? There's multiple Jesuses even in the Bible. It was a super common name in first century Israel. Um, I've seen numbers, everything from the most common name in Israel uh, in the first century, to the sixth most common male name in Israel. Um, and, and again, just depends on who you ask. But they found, when they go through and find bone boxes um, of, of people from the first century, they've already found 70 plus that have the name Yeshua on them, Jesus. It's, it's technically would be Joshua. If you want to study that kind of thing, it's fun to watch how one trans, the transliteration of Yeshua in the Hebrew to, to different languages finally turned into Jesus rather than Joshua, as you would expect, um, which is just weird, the thought that they didn't walk around calling him Jesus. He was called Yeshua by his family and by his friends and all that kind of stuff, which normally we would say is Joshua, but again, it's an interesting little, I don't know, comedy of errors, I guess. It ended up with the name Jesus for us, but, uh, but it works, right? I think we'll stick with it. Everybody okay with that? All right, so, so we have this great genealogy that begins starting in verse 1, establishing officially who Jesus is, and this is super important to Matthew. So Matthew wants to make sure we know which one he's talking about. So here we go, Yeshua, meaning Yahweh saves, common name, but who was he? Verse, chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Remember, Christ is not his last name. It's a title, Jesus the Christ, the chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that's, that's important. If you, if, I think Matthew's kind of saying here, listen, if you skip the rest of the genealogy, don't miss this. This is Jesus. He's the son of David, meaning he is royal. And he's the son of Abraham, meaning he's Jewish. He is a Jewish line. With, he's a Jew with royal blood is who you're dealing with. Now, we debated pretty much the entire podcast this week, is there any significance of the fact that, that Luke's genealogy is different in tone, feel, and even list of names and places than Matthew? If, if you want to unpack that, you can go listen to that. Um, but Luke's genealogy starts backwards. It, starts, it doesn't work its way from beginning to end. It starts end and works back toward the beginning, which is kind of interesting. But you have uh, that one goes all the way to Adam versus Matthew, which just starts with Abraham. Does that matter? You can discuss it. Um, four more times in Matthew, people are going to testify that Jesus is the son of David. This is a big deal to Matthew. He, he notices that every time it happens. 
the son of David, a Jew of royal blood. So let's go through the list of names. You'll recognize some of them if you're a Bible student. Some of them are pretty obscure, and you won't, they won't have a story that goes with them. Some will. Abraham, who has Isaac, who has Jacob, who has Judas and his brothers. Perez and Zerah of Tamar. Esram, Aram, Abinadab, Nason, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David. Then Solomon, Rehoboam, Abia, Asa, Josaphat, Joram, Ozias, Jotham, Achaz, Ezekiel, Manassas, Amon, Josias, Jeconias, carried to Babylon, Salathiel, Zerubbabel, Abiud, Eliakim, Azor, Sadok, Achim, Eliud, Eleazar, Mathan, Jacob, and Joseph, the husband of Mary. So these are some pretty significant people. Many of them are. But if you look up the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, there's going to be two things that are greatly emphasized. Article after article, commentary after commentary are going to emphasize. Sermon after sermon are going to emphasize two things. And by the way, you could, you could teach a sermon series or a Sunday school class based on that genealogy for months. The stories woven into it are amazing and impressive. But here's what people are going to point out to you. One... <clears throat> there's a number of women listed in the genealogy. This is uncommon. Normally, genealogies don't have women involved in them. And so the fact that Matthew references several women in the, the genealogy is a big deal. But here's what's wild. It's not even just several women and along with all the men. It's who is included. Men, women, Jews, a couple of Canaanites, a Moabite, a slaver, several kings, numerous habitual liars, murderers, <clears throat> prophets, prostitutes, a fake prostitute, polygamists, everything from the wisest and the greatest to the least and the most shameful are in this list. Situations that seem impossible to redeem are redeemed, if not before, they are redeemed in being part of this lineage. That's an amazing picture. The stories that you would go, this is horrible and shameful. And this is an honor-shame culture. The shame of having these people in your lineage is not only is it mentioned, it's emphasized in Jesus' lineage here in Matthew. Jesus is the product of every kind of shame. Every thick type of shame just about you can think of is involved in this lineage. It's one tale of redemption and hope from shame, one after another. It is a scandalous list, and you will see that in every sermon about it, every commentary about this list, that everything in this is something that you would naturally think, wow, this is embarrassing. Advent is about waiting. It's the concept of surprise interwoven into a story that we know well. What an odd combination. It's a story we all know, and yet we're surprised by. Sometimes every time we read it, I know I am, Every time I study it again, I find new things, new shocking things even sometimes that are in this. This is my favorite version of wonder, what Paul referenced last week. My favorite version is discovering something in the midst of something I should have seen a thousand times before and being in awe of it again. Look at the wonder and, and, and the, the anticipation of this. His gospel, this is important. What this lineage tells us is this. 
And this is, this is super important for all of us to hear. Jesus Christ's gospel isn't for the pure and the good and the honest and the faithful. He came to save the sick and the lost and the shameful and the dying. And that's who his gospel has been for all the way through. We are embarrassed by our own lives and our own stories and our own lineages maybe, and he redeems those. We too could have been part of this story, is what this says. When you look at the, the things in your own past and your own lineage and in your own life, the things you would never want anyone to know about, they're those very things, maybe some of the most dark and hidden things in your life, are splashed onto the page of the Bible in the lives of these people, and they're part of Jesus Christ's story. You could have been in his story. I could have been in his story. Even with all of our junk, we could have been part of this. And by the way, it's all told by a tax collector. All told by a man whose very occupation puts him at the bottom of the shame list alongside the prostitutes and even the fake prostitutes. I, I never had much of an emotional connection with Matthew. Uh, maybe it's because I'm not a numbers guy. I never had that connection with Matthew until one day on this stage, actually, Pike Wisner, I'm sure he's not the first one to say it and not the only one to say it, but Pike Wisner pointed out that in the book of Matthew, Matthew refers to himself in the third person as Matthew the tax collector. And that for the first just blew my mind, as if Matthew is saying, check this out. Look who God used. Look who Jesus chose. He chose me from the very bottom of the rung when it came to shame and embarrassment and humiliation. My story was the absolute worst, and yet look at this. He involved me, and I even get to write one of his Gospels. How about that? It's a beautiful picture, all told by a tax collector. It's like, it's like every time the Apostle Paul tries to talk about himself, and he's always blown away like, and God is using me. <laughs> what is he thinking? If you've never wondered that, then you either have an, an, an inaccurate picture of yourself or an accurate picture of God if you think it's not a wonder that God is using you. If you don't think it's a wonder that God is using me, then you don't know me well. Those of you who know me well, do you think that week after week, like, I know, oh my, well, I, wow, right? That is some God, right? Who does this kind of thing? Listen to this um, from Wade Berry, who is um, at B.H. Carroll Theological Institute. I found this quote from him. A third point that emerges from Matthew's telling of the birth story is that Jesus' coming was a surprise, and yet it should not have been. Matthew takes great pains to demonstrate that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament, and yet it's equally clear that his coming was obscure to nearly everyone. He did not come as a conquering hero, born to royalty and trained in the arts of war and diplomacy. He did not come as a priest, nurtured in the temple and connected with the religious elite of his day. He came as a supposedly illegitimate son of a carpenter and his straying fiance. Indeed, an angel has to intervene to keep his mother from being left all alone to raise her son. Remember that when he's an adult, when he runs into Nathaniel, Nathaniel and whichever Philip was with him, I think, whichever one was with Nathaniel at the time, I think it's Philip. They referred to him as Jesus, the son of Joseph. So what's the story apparently that's gone around in, in, in the Galilee for the last 30 years? That this is the Son of God? No, no. That Mary got pregnant and we all know how. That's been his... Jesus just carries along the lineage of shame and embarrassment right on through. The, the, the whole story here is exactly that from the beginning. 
And it's an amazing picture that these, these stories are so redeemed through this. The gospel is never hidden, but it's always a surprise. It is a wonder. It always is and continues to be. At least, at least it does for me. Trying to unpack the book, here the, the, the Advent and the story of Matthew, the only challenge was how am I going to put it in one Sunday? It slowly be, it began to, to grow on me in such a sense. I was like, I, you know, I, I think I could teach for months on this. It's an amazing thing just to see how the Bible unpacked. And <coughs> Joseph deals with these surprises like a champ in the book of Matthew. I think you're supposed to walk away from the book of Luke pretty impressed, uh, the, the Advent in Luke pretty impressed with Mary. You know, a woman of such gentle passion, a poetic songwriter um, who, who accepts God's calling on her life with grace that is just unthinkable under the conditions. But in Matthew, you walk away with the same attitude about Joseph. So Joseph, who we have so little of in most of the Bible, we don't hear anything about him after, eight, after Jesus is 12 years old. Here he is, he's, and he's, he's, his, his fiance turns up pregnant. And apparently he knows it's not his child. Apparently they've They have no reason to have a baby together, and she turns up pregnant. This is hugely shameful to him and, of course, to her. So one of the things he can do is try to take all that shame and dump it on her and her family, right? I have no idea how all this happened. and This is is a horrible thing, and and it might have gotten her killed if he had done that. Instead, he decides to do it quietly, probably knowing the rumors that it would create. But because he's a righteous man, it's intriguing to me, that the book of Matthew labels this as an expression of Joseph's righteousness. Usually righteousness is about zeal for the law. But here we see that Joseph understands the law beyond merely the written letter, but the power of the mercy and compassion behind it. So he is portrayed as righteous and patient. And by the way, I had never noticed this phrase until this time around, that it tells us that, that, that when he decided to divorce her quietly, it says that then he considered this. And that as he's considering this, an angel came to him in a dream. Now imagine if, if, if he was like so many men who they get news they don't like and they are filled with anger and rage, especially when they feel justified in it, right? Um, as a therapist, we often joke, this isn't true, but we joke about the fact that men have two emotions, angry and not angry. Um, and so, and so that, that, that we have this this anger wells up in us and this frustration, it's just that we don't know how to talk about the others very well. So we have this, and so he just goes to her and, and just lashes out at her and maybe at her family. But instead, because Joseph is a righteous man who is wise and who's patient, he sleeps on it. Obviously he does because he has a dream in which an angel speaks to him. He doesn't rush to judgment. He is patient. He's waiting on God and God provides this dream <clears throat> in which he clarifies, Joseph, it's okay to marry her. And by the way, it says that Joseph does what the Lord tells him to do and he marries her. It's very Hosea-like, like a prophet who's marrying somebody who is filled with shame. Now, how did, how did Matthew know about this? I don't know. Maybe Matthew somehow knew Joseph before Joseph died. or Maybe there's more to the story of Joseph that we just don't have. Maybe Mary knew the story well enough to tell it to Matthew or, or Jesus himself. We don't know. Much less the conversations with the wise men. How did Matthew find out about those? He probably wasn't there for that. He lived in a different place and would have been a young man, I assume. We don't know, but would have been a young man, probably not even born yet at this time. 
that the conversations with the wise men, the Magi, as they traveled a long way, this may have been the very kind of thing that the Magi were talking about on their way. However long it took them to get to Bethlehem, to Jerusalem, were they wondering already? Were they treasuring already? Were they praising and worshiping already? These guys have kind of a funny story. There's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek aspect to the story. The naivete of the wise men, I think, is meant to be something that we think is, is kind of cute. Um, but but I, I do want to comment on the fact that it bought, what, what I love about the wise men is that they're apparently looking. They're looking for a star when God reveals it. And what stands out about the story and the star is that no one else seems to. Notice that Herod doesn't recognize the star and understand its significance. I mean, Herod's going to know nothing, apparently, about the prophecies in a minute. I think Matthew intentionally slaps him for it here. But Herod is so not a good Jew that he doesn't even know the basic things that every Jewish child would have known. But here you have these wise men who are from a different place, and they're watching for a star. This was... This was a form, a, a tool that I used in prayer after I left one place and was kind of floating around waiting for, to feel like God was calling me to some new thing. And I would call it that. I would say, like, God, show me a star. A friend and I, when we were talking on the, on the phone for a couple hours about this, he was in the same boat I was in, and going, God, show us a star. Don't let us miss the star you have for us. Whatever this star is, don't let us miss it. Like apparently nearly everyone did at the birth of Jesus. There was a star. And no one else saw it. It's a star. They're hard to miss. Especially in Israel in the first century when there are no streetlights and there are no flashlights. There's, I mean, you, you go out where it's dark and there's nothing like that. You, you look up and it's, there are stars. And this is such a significant star. It's a new star. And, and we'll talk about it in a minute. I know that for many, they, they emphasize the kind of Christmas star mindset, the idea that, that there were planets lining up or something like that. And that may be true when they first saw it. In a minute, I'll tell you, I don't think that's the whole story all the way through. But so ask yourself, okay, good, ready, ready for this? Who were these guys? So we'll, we'll, we'll sing the song in a few minutes, which is really cool. Um, there's going to be a couple errors in the first line. So three kings and orient. Other than that, the first line's perfect, right? Other than there are not three of them, they are not kings, and they aren't from the orient. They're they're almost certainly from Persia, so we, we, get, we don't know that for sure, but that's likely. We don't know that there are three. As John, John sent me a text during the sermon, he's like, you don't know there's not three either. That, that is true. There, there might have been three. That's an excellent point. There might, we don't know. We have no idea the numbers. We know there are three gifts, and I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But are you ready for this? Here's who they probably are. Here's who I think they are. I think these are Chaldeans or Jews from Babylon. I think that's the most likely thing. Now, where, why would there be Jews in Babylon? What a weird thing. Where would they have come from? Anybody ever heard of a time when the Jews maybe would have gone to Babylon? Have ever heard of any of that kind of stuff? And maybe there would have been Jewish people with the law there in Babylon, training and teaching their people, actually leading their wise men, preparing them to study the Hebrew Scriptures well enough to recognize that when this star appears... It's part of the Jewish prophecy. They should follow it. That maybe 600 years before when Daniel and the rest of the Jews were put there in Babylon for a while, in that, which was now Persia, Persia owned all of that, that maybe, maybe these are the descendants, maybe directly descendants. These may have been Jewish wise men from the east who lived in Babylon. At minimum, 
They may have been Chaldean wise men who were trained by Jews to look into Jewish Scripture and had gained the value of the Hebrew Scriptures and looking into it, especially for prophecy, especially if they had the book of Daniel handy. Scholars and students of the heavens, the Chaldeans and Jews, both of whom were descendants, literally or figuratively, of the exile, which is what we've been studying. They certainly knew the Hebrew Scriptures well enough to know what gifts to bring. And this is where the song is brilliant. Ready for this? So in Isaiah... 9, 6, and 7, maybe these magi had read this. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, (coughs) there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The second line in the We Three Kings song says this, Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again. King forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. They knew to bring gold because they knew they were coming for a king. That's not surprising. They say that. Psalm 110.4 says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus, who is not a Levite, could not be a priest in the order of Levi. But he could be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. There's a whole story behind that that we won't get into. But this other priestly person from the deep Old Testament. So they understood that Jesus was prophesied to be a priest. Frankincense, third line. Frankincense to offer have I. Incense owns a deity nigh. Prayer and praising, voices raising, worshiping God on high. So Jesus was going to be a priest, and they knew that this king was not just a king, but he was a priest. Isaiah 53, 4, and 5, maybe they read this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Third line, myrrh is mine. Its bitter perfume breathes a life of gathering gloom. Sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying. Sealed in the stone-cold tomb. Myrrh was a gift for a dead man. Myrrh is a gift you wrap a body in. Jesus' body was wrapped in myrrh, the book of John tells us. I'll, I'll save the last line of the song for when we sing it in a little bit, as this is all brought together. They knew all of this so well. Yet, not everyone knows their scriptures so well as we're about to discover in Matthew 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written in the prophet, by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's meant to be embarrassing that Herod doesn't know this basic principle of the Messiah, I think. It's the kind of person Herod was. Herod is known as Herod the Great because of his construction projects. He is not known by anyone as Herod the Good. He was an evil, evil person, dark and evil. Matthew, what we know is he had a nasty problem of executing people publicly, including his own family, sometimes at during dinner. Um, 
There was no, there were no bar, no, no moral bars on Herod. He did whatever he thought would serve Herod. And so in this story, Herod is supposedly, you know, he's all excited. He pretends to be all excited for these wise men who have come from the east to hear that his competitor has been born. The person who's going to usurp his power as the king. And so we're supposed to kind of get this like, the wise men apparently don't read a lot of, you know, fiction. They don't watch a lot of movies or read plays. They would know how this is. You don't, you don't go to the king. And if you're a good Jew and you read that Herod has now been involved in the story, you know he's the villain. And so here you have that, that they come and say, hey, this is there's exciting good. You have to know that they were like confused. They show up in Jerusalem, the capital where the new king had probably has been born, and no one's celebrating. How come no one knows? It takes foreigners to come tell the Jewish people that that star that they are missing means their king has been born. This, is, this, again, is meant to show you where the scribes and teachers of the law were in Israel this day. They were concerned about power, not about training the people. It's the same kind of conflict that Jesus is going to have when he faces Nicodemus and goes, you're a teacher of the people and you don't know this basic stuff? I mean, this is simple stuff, Nicodemus, and you're supposed to be the teacher of the people of Israel and you don't get this? This is a problem. This is exactly what happens when you begin to face inward as, a, as the people of God start facing inward and figuring out how do we gain power within this culture? How do we keep this culture happy with us? How do we, all the things we've been talking about with Daniel rather than saying, yeah, but look at what God's word says. Here's what God's word says. Here's what it's teaching us. They should, the whole nation should have been prepared for this. Oh, look, there's a star. <coughs> That's got to be special. Nope. Just some Persians. They show up to tell everybody their own king has been born. And Herod, and of course, what is the response? Herod's happy about this. He decides to throw a party. No. He wants this kid dead. He doesn't want God to send a king to Israel. You realize if he believes them, then he believes that God has sent a new king. And then he's going to have that king killed. That's his declaration to God's motion here. This is a big deal that Herod takes this stance. So after listening to the king, he tells them, hey, I can't, I can't wait to worship this kid with you. Make sure and come back and tell me exactly where he is so that I can go worship him too. Again, all of us are going, don't do it, it's a trap. But they don't, they're apparently buying this at this point. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose. This is verse 9 of chapter 2. Went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. <coughs> this is where I'm no longer willing to accept that this is merely a star. Um, stars don't point you to certain houses. Um, you've been followed by the moon when you've been driving around when you were a kid. You know that's not how celestial bodies work, right? They don't lead you places like that. So whether it was a star at first, here we have a spiritual being leading them. But here's what's cool. Remember what we've learned recently is that the term star and spiritual being for the ancient thinkers was already kind of a fuzzy concept. See, they thought of the stars as being at, min at minimum representatives of spiritual beings, if not spiritual beings themselves. And so this term being used kind of interchangeably here is not strange to them at all. <coughs> this isn't like <clears throat> our modern horoscope astrology, which says that stars have control over your life in some way. These big balls of gas exploding millions of miles away, somehow the zodiac has power in your life. So spoiler alert, it doesn't. Okay? Cut that junk out. Like that's just goofiness. Something like 40%, I think, of born-again Christians allegedly still check their horoscope. Yeah, stop that. Okay, do a quiet time or something, please, right? 
I mean, as I said in the first service, I don't care if you play Farmville. That would be better. I mean, something inane would certainly be better than wasting your time looking at your horoscope. Toss that junk. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not even what first century, certainly Persian or Jewish, astrology would have meant. They combine these two concepts way more than we do now. We understand a little more difference. They believe this. <coughs> do stars influence you? No, but divine beings do. And the idea of stars and divine beings being kind of an interchangeable concept. It wasn't the star that was influencing your life or engaging with your life or delivering a message. It was the divine beings represented in that star that was delivering the message. So those ideas were very together. Was there an alignment to, to teach the, the people of Persia, these wise men of Persia, to leave and head for Jerusalem? Sure, there very well may have been at that time, and they would have interpreted that as being the spiritual divine counsel, whatever, giving them a message. Again, ironically, it would have been a message to everyone who was paying attention, but no one was. In fact, consider this. Consider the importance of the divine beings of this account. As the author who I read a second ago said, if not for the angel interfering, Mary would have been on her own. And, and there's actually a whole, the, the, every time there's a fork in the road in the story of the advent of the coming of Jesus Christ, every time there's a fork in the road, an angel shows up and guides them on which fork to take. Consider that Mary would have been more than a little confused about her pregnancy if not for an angel, Right? I mean, she turned up pregnant without having sex with anybody, and that would have been a little strange. But an angel ex explains that to her. Joseph would have divorced her, and she would have had to raise Jesus alone. There would have been no announcement to the shepherds. There would have been no wise men. The birthplace would have involved just Mary and Joseph. Jesus and his young family would have been murdered by King Herod. And if all of that was avoided, he would have been raised in Egypt for the rest of his life until the angel tells him to go back home. So here's how it happens. The wise men are warned by an angel to go back without talking to Herod. Herod picks up on this. So you may not know this, Bethlehem is only about two miles from Jerusalem. You can see Bethlehem from Jerusalem and vice versa. They're right there by each other. So, so what happens is, and it's one of our mistakes, when you get to go to Israel, you will experience that mistake. It's a massive mistake that we as Texans make because we think of everything as so big and everything is so far away from each other. And you get over there, it's like, oh, that's just like you could walk there. And yes, they did. And so what you have probably is Herod realizing the wise men didn't come back. We don't know how long the gap is here. The wise men didn't come back. <clears throat> So we have a problem. So he'd, luckily he had asked the wise men, how long ago did the star appear? I think it's safe to assume it appeared about two years ago. Because then what Herod, it says is that Herod goes, based on the number, the date that the wise men had told him, he sends men to Bethlehem to kill all the children who are two and young, all the boys who are two and younger. You can imagine Herod playing that game of Clue in Bethlehem, two and younger, male. Okay, I've got it. And then in the middle of the night, he sends a handful of soldiers and again, picturing it correctly, most people, very few people think Bethlehem was much of a place 2,000 years ago. It's probably a pretty small village of mostly shepherding families. They would have shown up. They could have found all the children, broken into the, the houses, grabbed any child, any male child under the age of two, killed it or smothered it or whatever, and then walked away in a couple of hours at the most in the middle of the night. And though there's no external evidence outside of Scripture of this happening, there wouldn't be. Herod wouldn't publicize that. It fits perfectly in with Herod's personality and his character. It's exactly the kind of way Herod would deal with a problem like this. Well, just kill some people. 
He'd have done it in the name of Rome and would have gotten away with it and no one would have cared except the people whose children were gone and not going to come back. And that's why there was lamenting in the world at that time. It's important. Now, so, but before that could happen, an angel shows up to Joseph in another dream and says, hey, take the child and, her mo- and his mother and go to Egypt. So he goes to Egypt and he's raised in Egypt for a little while. Then at some point, Herod dies in this whole storyline and then the angel tells Make sure that Joseph knows Herod is dead. He can come back home. They come home. Israel's safe, but Jerusalem isn't. Bethlehem isn't. <clears throat> it's too close to where the children of Herod live, and so they don't want to risk it, so they go off to Nazareth. I've always thought this is interesting because we get in this, in this passage, we get three different prophecies fulfilled that Jesus is going to be called a Nazarene. He's raised in Nazareth. That he's going to come out of Egypt. My, my son will come out of Egypt and that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And all three of them are focused on here, which I've always thought was really interesting. And again, this is total supposition. But I imagine Jesus being 12 years old, the account in the book of Luke, being 12 years old. He's in the temple. He's had his bar mitzvah. He's now a man. Mom and dad, you know, he probably came with mom because he was a child. He was supposed to go home with dad because now he's a man. The men and women traveled separately, according to some. And this would have been like how they got confused at the end of the first night. They go, wait, I thought Jesus was with you. No, 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 I thought he was with you. And Oh gosh, we've got to go back to Jerusalem and figure out what, where he is. So they go back and they find him, and he's in the temple having a discussion with the scribes and the teachers, and he's teaching them. <clears throat> Maybe it went something like this. <clears throat> Jesus is sitting there as a kid, and they're debating, where's the Messiah going to come from? Where's the Messiah going to come from? And they're discussing it, and one of them goes, listen guys, he's going to come from Bethlehem. That's, it says very clearly, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And one of the other goes, yeah, it says that, but maybe, maybe that's just a reference somehow um, to the analogy of him being born in the city of David, that he's going to be the child of David, because it also says he's going to be a Nazarene. So we know he's from Nazareth. And somebody else going, whoa, 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 guys, guys, you're leaving out the fact that he's going to call his son out of Egypt. See, you're missing, you're missing the point here. He's going to come from Egypt. And Jesus, as a 12-year-old, is going, I mean... There's a way all three of those things could be true about the same person, right? Teachers and scribes? And they're like, no, 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 no. He goes, well, okay, listen, just hear me out. What if your parents were sent to Bethlehem for the census? Remember the census? What if, what if you were born there in Bethlehem, and then in order to flee Herod, your dad took you to Egypt, and you were there for a few years, and then you came back and moved to Nazareth and lived until, I don't know, age 12 in Nazareth? Like, wouldn't you be able to say all three of those things about the same person? Can you imagine Mary comes in at that moment and says, didn't you know your father and I would be worried? And he goes, yeah, didn't you know I need to be about my father's business? The revelation to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit and his word, all supposition, I don't know, but it would be wild to consider those three things being found in one person like that. Anyway, cool cool picture, at least to my mind. So what what is this joy? This joy, the concept of the king and the kingdom. The fact that that we belong in a different kingdom and our king came to visit us to declare our citizenship. Our residency is here. Our citizenship is back at our home country. We get to be home someday. I don't know about you, but this is one of the things that brings me joy is the experience. I I love traveling. I'm one of those people who loves to travel. My wife doesn't love to travel, but I love to travel. So I like going overseas, and one of, the, one of the cool things about being overseas is there's all this new, strange, uh, different, exotic things that you get to experience. 
<clears throat> but I don't know about you, I get, I get over there and, I don't know, day six, seven, eight, certainly by day eight or nine, I'm kind of like, how much longer till we go home? I mean, I love this place. I think it's really cool. It's a great thing to experience, but I feel it's time to go home. And there's a great joy in knowing that there's a home waiting for me somewhere. I remember this so distinctly when several years ago I got to go to Cairo, got to go to Egypt. And I mean, you talk about exotic, right? I mean, is there any more exotic place? Such a different population of people and interacting with these people and watching how their culture works and fails to work and, and, and getting to know these different things that are going on. And the hospitality was really amazing and getting to see things that are older than anything here <clears throat> and, and seeing the pyramids and thinking, man, look, this, is, this is some amazing, amazing stuff. And at about day six or seven going... I think, I, when do I go? I'm checking my flights. I think it's tomorrow because I'm kind of ready to go home. This is one of the pictures that I think Matthew helps create for us is that there is a king and he's from the kingdom where we belong. That's our home. And he came to visit us, Emmanuel, God with us. And he came to visit us because he wanted us to know about this kingdom that we could live according to, and someday he's going to take us back home there. We'll talk about that under the book of Mark. Mark gets quite a bit of emphasis on the second advent, as we'll talk about next week. What kind of joy do we get? Maybe there's some amazing things that we get to enjoy here. But at home, that's where there are pleasures forevermore in his hand. That's where there are joys forevermore, unspeakable and full of glory. And that's part of the picture. We get to embrace the joys of God working here, but also what God's going to be doing over there. What does our future hold? It holds relationships, new and deepening ones here, but then forever with one another and our King. The redemption being made new. To get to live in the kingdom the fact that, that our story gets to make sense someday, that we get to be a part of that. It's, it's shocking that God uses us like he did Matthew, like he did Paul, like that he does us should be shocking. It is shocking to us. If you've ever met you, it should be shocking to you that God uses you. You should look around and go like, what, me? My story? My sin? My issues? And you use me? What? That's nuts. What are you thinking? If, listen, if you knew me better, you'd be stunned that God used The people who know me well are stunned week after week. My family watching, they're like, wow, yeah, we don't get it either. Like it's a, what, how God makes use of us is an amazing thing. The redemption of our story, the redemption of our efforts, what a beautiful thing. The recovery, Jesus is coming back and he's going to get us and take us to be where he is. That where he is, we may also be. A resurrection, a new and daily anticipation of things only being better and better. <clears throat> because of this, the best way I know to talk about this, and I have for years. So we had great Christmases when I was growing up. Christmas Day was awesome. And whoever it involved, just my parents or grandparents, whoever was there, you never knew what was going to turn up. You had no idea. We didn't, we didn't do Christmas lists or wish lists, and, and we certainly didn't peek at, peek at things like that at gifts, none of that kind of stuff. My dad always said if I guessed correctly at a gift, he was going to take it back. It was always a surprise to me. So you only guessed things you didn't want. That was the only like, socks, underwear. Like that was a, the things you didn't want you might get, but you never wanted to guess anything you would really want because he might really do it, right? So none of that was ever tempting to me, but Christmas morning... Man, when you got to open up those packages and get those gifts and, and celebrate and have a special breakfast and all these things, 
All you, as a kid, all I knew for sure about Christmas morning is it was going to be awesome. I didn't know anything else about it. This is what it would be like to be in the new Jerusalem with that God who resurrects and restores and redeems forever. That all you know for sure about tomorrow is it's going to be better than today. And today was more awesome than you could possibly wrap your brain around. And this is where our hope lies, is in a God who creates that kind of a future so that we can borrow that future now when we face our troubles. And we can hold on to those. We have a hope for that and a peace that is found even in the midst of turmoil because of the joy we have in borrowing that eternity and touching on it now. Why? Because he's crazy about us. So I I hope that God is working in your heart in regards to these things as well. Pray with me, if you will. Father, what a great beautiful picture that in so many ways Christmas has become when all the strange history that it has too and yet ends up being something that exemplifies your gospel message in so many beautiful ways. God, I thank you for you who is a God who needed nothing but who chose to suffer by creating us and then redeem us. What kind of a God chooses to suffer? Not one we would invent. But you've chosen that for us because of your overwhelming love that overflows into your creation in our lives. Thank you, Father, that we get to join, that we still get to search for the stars and see what you have for us and be involved in the amazing things you're doing that you're going to do sometimes with or without us, but that we get to be involved with. Thank you, Father, for all of that in our lives. I pray we'll be humbled to see what message you have for us this day. In your son's name, amen.